Does God have his favorites where he chooses one person over another? No, he does not. But God does have his standards. And if we understand his standards and we are willing to apply them to our life, then God can mightily use us. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're nearing the end of our study in the book of Romans and find ourselves today in chapter 15, verses 14 to 29. And this week, Pastor Brogy will begin a look at how to have a life and ministry that God can use. God wants to use his children and his church for his glory. So as you listen this week, consider asking yourself if there might be anything in your life that needs to change in order for God to better use you. If you're joining us for the very first time, it's been almost three years now since we began our study of the book of Romans. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. Can God use the people of Community Bible Church? And more specifically, can God use you? Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a part of a dead church that's doing nothing and going nowhere for God. I want to be a part of a triumphant church, a church that God is blessing, a church that God is growing, and we can be that kind of church if we keep first things first. But when you think of the church, you need to think of people. You need to think of people whom God has organized as his sheep into local flocks. What I'm trying to say is that this message is not just for the church in general, because the church is in general what we are one by one, that this message is for you and it's for me, and we need to hear what God would have to say. I'm going to begin reading precisely where we left off last time in verse 14. Romans 15 and verse 14, I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. And concerning you, my brethren... I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit." Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, and the power of signs and wonders, and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as El Rickham, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus, I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who had not heard shall understand. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have for many years a longing to come to you, Whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I have first enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. 
Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on my way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Alan Emery, the former chairman of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, wrote an intriguing book with an intriguing title. It was called A Turtle on a Fence Post. And in the opening chapter, he wrote these words. One morning, I picked up Dr. Robert Lamont to drive him to a meeting. He was flying in from Pittsburgh, where at the time, he was the pastor of the First Presbyterian Church. In the relaxed drive from Hamilton, he spoke of his work in such a way that I felt he viewed himself as a spectator of what God had done through his ministry. I suggested that much of what had been accomplished must be because of his gifts and talents. He replied, Alan, while I was a schoolboy, we would occasionally see a turtle on a fence post. When we did, we knew someone had put him there. He didn't get there by himself. That's how I see my own life. I'm a turtle on a fence post. My brothers and sisters in Christ, God loves to do extraordinary things through ordinary, everyday people. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he underscored that truth with these words, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. Jim Elliott, the famous missionary who in 1956 was martyred in trying to reach the Aka Indians with the gospel, stated it so succinctly when he defined as a missionary as a bunch of nobodies trying to exalt somebody. Paul, when he writes his first letter to the Corinthians in the first chapter, reminds us there are not many noble, not many wise, that God again uses ordinary people to pull off the extraordinary. Now, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he was a great man of God. But had you at the birth of the church said that he would be probably the greatest Christian ever used in the history of the church, people would have laughed. Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of the church, the greatest Christian in the history of the church. Saul was a turtle on a fence post. And what we find in Romans chapter 15 are some clues and to some hints as to why God used him so powerfully. We find the reasons why God could put him on a fence post. Now, with many of you here for the first time, let me walk us into the context. The rest of us would do well to be refreshed. If you remember, when you come to the 12th chapter, the very first word is the word therefore, which tells you he's about to make application. And so he takes the theology and the prophecy and the doctrine of the first 11 chapters of Romans and he applies it beginning in chapter 12 in verse 1. And if you remember here in the practical section or the applicational section of Romans, with each section I've given you three key words to summarize the section so that hopefully you can think your way all the way through the book of Romans. The first key word I gave you was the word bond. In the opening two verses, he describes our bond to God as living in holy sacrifices. Then beginning in verse 3 through verse 16, he speaks of our bond to other believers, that God has wired us together, that we are dependent on one another through the gifts of the Spirit to function as a body. And then in the rest of that chapter, he speaks of our bond to unbelievers. That is what should or should not be our relationship 
to an unbelieving world. The second key word I gave you in the application section was the word behavior. And so in Romans 13, 1 through 7, he describes our behavior to the government, that we are to be submissive and respectful as long as they don't ask us to do something contrary to the will and work of God. Then in verses 8 through 10, we saw our behavior to our neighbor, and then finally our behavior towards ourself, that we are to make no provision for the flesh in regards to its evil desires. The third key word I gave you was the word brothers. And over chapter 14, we discuss brothers who are weak, weak in their conscience. Then we began to deal in chapter 15 with brothers who are strong in the first half. And now in the last half, where we find ourselves today in verses 14 through 29, he deals with brothers who are to be. And then, of course, if you remember chapter 16, from the introduction to the book of Romans I gave three years ago, that's the conclusion to the book. Now, we're almost at the end of this great letter. And as I have been working through Romans for three years, I still hear the words of one of my professors ringing through my ears. He would say it time and time and time again to us. Men, it does not really matter how many times you go through the Bible. What matters is how many times the Bible goes through you. And many of you have been here for the entire Romans series. But what is significant is what difference has the book of Romans in your exposure to the Word of God made in your life in those three years? Now, here in the latter half of chapter 15, Paul does something that he rarely does anywhere in the New Testament. If you read his 13 letters, he very rarely, almost never speaks about himself, but he does here in the last half of the 15th chapter. And he gives us some clues as to the nature and success of his ministry. And so you can see the title of this morning's message there in your note-taking outline is A Life in Ministry God Can Bless. Now do not forget, Paul did not plant the church at Rome. He did not start it. Nor up until this point in his life had he ever visited the church at Rome. And yet he addresses some very difficult issues in this letter. And so before he shares the ingredients for a successful life in ministry, he first assures them of his love and care and concern for them. He begins by commending them of three qualities that are true in their life. Look, if you will, at verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and also able to admonish one another. So he begins by commending these Christians for being full of goodness. That did not mean they were sinless. All of us are in process. But he is saying that their Christian character had developed so much that moral goodness characterized their life. In addition, he says they are filled with all knowledge. Now, if you said to another person, I am filled with all knowledge, they'd probably say, well, who do you think you are? Only God has all knowledge. Only God is omniscient. I get a lot of help from the particular Greek word that is translated here, fill. It's not the word that has just been translated full. It's the Greek word mestos that means abounding and carrying out. It was used in the first century of a sponge that had been saturated in water. And so when you squeeze the sponge, out came the water. Paul, in essence, is saying, listen, when life squeezes you, what comes out is goodness and the knowledge of God. And so here was a group of people who were not simply taking 
in information, but they had been applying it to their lives. They had been taking the truth of God and putting it into shoe leather. And then he says, if you will notice also here in verse 14, that they were also able to admonish one another. Now the word uh, admonish here is nutheteo. You can hear our English word nuthetic. It's made up of two Greek words, nois, which we've seen over and over again in Romans, the word for mind, and then the word tithemi, which means to place or to set. And so sometimes we hear pastors who speak of nuthetic counseling. What are they doing? They're saying, number one, the scriptures are sufficient, that we don't need to go to some secular model of counseling to help people, but the scriptures are, are indeed sufficient, and we can take a thought of the mind and place it in their mind, a thought of truth, and if they apply it, they will see real change. Now, this is important because these Christians were not afraid to admonish one another. We tend to go to extremes today. Some say, look, I'm not going to confront anyone. Who am I ever to confront anyone? You're a Christian. We're members one of another, and we're to love and to care for one another. Some face confrontation with a head-on, holier-than-thou kind of attitude, and they play the role of junior Holy Spirit. God has not called you to play His role. And then there are some who, under the name of unity, under the banner of fellowship, just shrug it off, and they don't want to be, quote-unquote, divisive. Yet if you truly love someone, if you really care about them, then you will at times confront them. And so these Christians in essence were saying, I have such integrity in my life and I care so deeply about you as my brother or sister in Christ that I care enough to tell you the truth. And so these Christians were full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. Now, some of you might be asking and thinking this morning, well, if they were such gifted Christians, then why does the Apostle Paul confront them so boldly? He gives two reasons. Notice verse 15. But I've written, look into your text, you'll get much more out of the sermon if you have a Bible. I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. You cannot remind a church enough about the basics. And when a church or an individual in that church develops an attitude where they say, well, I know that, I've heard that before, I could even preach it, pastor, tell me something new, then that person is in an awful place spiritually. And if you ever develop that mentality, then you are reaching a place where God can very quickly put you on a shelf and stop using you because God does not use prideful people. We need to be reminded over and over and over again, not to mention if we're doing the job that Paul will describe in this chapter, there will always be new Christians in the fellowship who are hearing it for the first time. But if we're just a holy huddle and reaching no one for Christ, then yes, we will be filled up with pride and not want to hear. But he gives a second reason, notice. But I've written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God. He is reminding them of his apostolic authority, that he was called by the Lord Jesus. Now with that said, he proceeds to go on, and he describes why it is that God is able to bless his life and ministry. Why did God use the Apostle Paul in such a mighty way? Is it because God has his favorites? Does God just arbitrarily say, well, I'm going to bless this life and use this person in a magnificent way, but this person I'm not? 
In the 19th century, God mightily used a medical missionary by the name of C.T. Stodd. I've read his memoirs. They were absolutely fascinating to me and had a great impact on me as a new believer. And he wrote these words, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and in and through a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. And if you've ever read his life, then you know this medical missionary, this medical doctor in the 19th century was used in a profound way to shake the continent of Africa with the gospel. One morning, D.L. Moody, Moody, Dwight Lyman Moody, a poorly educated shoe salesman, was in a Bible study with a group of men, and one of his friends, Henry Varley, was reading the memoirs of C.T. Stodd. And Harley read to the group, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and in and through a man who is completely and fully consecrated to him. And Moody said in his heart that day, God, let me be that man. And God used an ordinary man to shake three continents with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Major question, does God have his favorites where he chooses one person over another? No, he does not. But God does have his standards. And if we understand his standards and we are willing to apply them to our life, then God can mightily use us. And so why is it that Paul was a turtle on a fence post? Let me give you three reasons this morning. First, if you want to see God honored in your life, if you want to see God use you in a mighty way, then like the Apostle Paul, we must have a priestly ministry. Paul had a priestly ministry. Now, notice how he refers to himself here in verse 16. He tells us that grace was given to him from God. Why? To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, what precisely does that mean? With God's help, we can unpack this verse. First, What does it mean when he says he is a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles? Well, most of you know that the word Gentiles is the Greek word ethnos. It's often translated nations. And it's used in different ways in different contexts. Most commonly, it is a synonym in the New Testament for a pagan. Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, do not pray like the Gentiles. Some of the newer translations will say, don't pray like the the pagans. That's the thought. So Paul was saying here, I want to be a minister, I want to be a priest to the nations, to the pagans. And if you know anything about the Gentiles, the pagans in his day, they were not people with some degree of religious orthodoxy. They were hardcore idolaters with a long list of pagan gods. And so Paul wants to be a minister to the Gentiles. You may not be called to carry the gospel to a pagan land. But God can use you here in America because there are people everywhere who have no idea as to what the gospel of Jesus Christ is about. Now, please remember, any good church that God is blessing is a church that will grow not simply by gathering Christians. Any church that is simply gathering Christians is a church that is dying. It may look good on the outside, but it is dying. One of my staff members years ago who I admired so greatly, Bill Ashton, who is now in heaven, his wife sits here in the service this morning with us. I remember asking him, how do you feel, Bill? He said, I feel great. 
I would never think there was anything wrong with me. But he was dying on the inside, filled with cancer. Listen, there are a lot of churches that look great on the outside, and people are coming, and more people are coming. But if I have 50 cents in my left pocket and I move it into my right pocket, I don't have any more money. And there's a lot of churches that are moving Christians from one evangelical church into another. Granted, there are some Christians who need to leave the church they are in because it has moved into liberalism or they have compromised the truth of God or the pastor has ceased to function as a shepherd to feed the church of God. I understand that. But if all we are doing is gathering Christians, then we have not grown in a quantitative sense and we will be ultimately a dying church. God wants us, each one of us, to be ministers to pagans, to lost people, to folks who are lost in, in the need of Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you a question this morning. Do you really care about people who are lost? Do unsaved people know that you are a born-again Christian? Do you see yourselves as a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles? Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church who's been in heaven for decades now, he was riding in a train with his associate pastor and a group of ladies across from him said, well, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm a Catholic priest. And his brother next to him just about fell out of his seat. He said, I am a Catholic priest. Of course, the word Catholic means universal and priest. Well, all of us are priests under the old covenant. God had a unique group of people, the Levites, who would serve as priests. But under the new covenant, every Christian is a priest. But you are a chosen race, Peter will write. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are Catholic priests. We have a universal ministry to the world as God's priests. Now, the word that's used for priest is a word that would be typically used as someone who ministers in a temple. You say, well, do we have a temple in which we minister in? Yes, we do. And it is not simply this building. This building is the meeting place of Community Bible Church. Under the old covenant, God had a... Uh, a temple for his people. Under the new covenant, God has a people who are his temple. We are the temple of the living God. We are living stones. And so we come together for strengthening. We gather so that when we are scattered, we are like universal priests proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his beloved kingdom. And notice what Paul ministered. He ministered here the gospel of God. Now, if you remember from high school English, unless you had new English, there's the genitive case. There's the possessive case. You could translate the Greek literally, this is the gospel whose source is God. This is the gospel of God, or you could say it is God's gospel. Paul warned the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 11 of people who would preach another Jesus people who would preach a different spirit, a different gospel. In other words, they'll talk about the gospel, they will talk about the spirit, they will talk about Jesus, but it is another Jesus. Which is why in Galatians chapter 1, Paul warned the church there that there are some who are disturbing you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
And then he will give this warning that we need to heed in our day. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed, anathema. It's a very strong word. It means damned to hell. And he says that under the inspiration of the spirit. Why? Because God's heart is so hurt by those who distort the gospel and lead people not to heaven, but to hell. As we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. When I see the Book of Mormon that claims to be another testament, I cannot help but think of this verse. And the irony of it is that Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, claims that an angel of God came and gave him this new revelation, this so-called new gospel. And so Paul ministered the gospel. This is not Paul's gospel. This is not some revelation that he dreamed up. This is not the apostle's gospel. This is not this church's gospel. This is God's gospel. It's not human opinion. It has been revealed by God through Christ. It is not human speculation. It's not just another religion and the Parthenon of religions. It is the gospel of God. And so we are to be careful how it is that we handle it. So-called evangelical pastor Rob Bell, who I criticized a decade ago in a Christmas sermon, and I got more notes in the mail and email why I should not attack this brother in Christ, but I question the legitimacy of what he said on the virgin birth, and I question whether or not he was tre- preaching the same Jesus. Last Sunday... In his interview with Oprah, my wife sent me this email and these, the, the actual text from the interview. He said, loneliness is not good for the world. Whoever you are, gay or straight, it is totally normal, natural, and healthy to want someone to go through life with. It's central to our humanity. We want someone to go on the journey with. This prompted Oprah Winfrey to ask, well, when is the church going to get this? He responded, quote, we're close. I think it's evolving. Lots of people are already there. We think it's inevitable, and we're moments away from the church accepting it. And then Bell warned that for the church to resist same-sex marriage, that it would, quote, continue to be even more irrelevant. And then he said, I think culture is already there and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense when you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and co-workers and neighbors and they love each other and just want to go through life. I think he's right. I think we are moments away from accepting it because we have a fake evangelical church that is twisting the scriptures. Our study from the book of Romans was originally delivered about nine years ago. And indeed, as Pastor Brogy indicated, since then, dozens of mainline evangelical preachers have capitulated on the position of homosexual marriage. For a copy of today's message from Romans 15 entitled, A Life and Ministry That God Can Use, download the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 
and requesting program ROM70. Perhaps you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow we'll continue our look at a life and ministry God can use. Join us then as we search the scriptures.